Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. So this week I have with me Harper, who has generously agreed to sit with me and have a conversation. How about telling folks who are listening a little bit about yourself? I am 43 years old. I'm a trans woman. I'm married. I have a seven-year-old daughter. I grew up in the South, mostly Texas and Arkansas, uh, and I live in Oakland now. That sounds like quite a shift in demographic. (laughs) You went ahead and put together an agenda. So your first point was growing up in Texas in the 1980s. I was born in 1978 in Louisiana, actually, but I don't remember it because we moved when I was only a few months old, and then we moved to East Texas to be near my grandparents. I grew up near my grandparents and my uncle and his family. There's just a lot of things growing up in Texas that um, definitely had an influence on me. And there's a lot of casual racism, a lot of various issues that I ran into growing up. As a kid, I didn't really realize a lot of that stuff was going on. It was just kind of invisible to me. Things my grandparents would say, people would say around me. I remember once when I was eight or nine, maybe even younger, I heard another kid use the N-word. I didn't actually even know what the word meant. All I knew was that it was a word you use to insult someone. And so a few days later, I was trying to insult another kid, and I used the N-word because I thought it was an insult. And had my mom explained to me that that was not okay. Like I said, I was seven or eight years old. I had no idea what I was actually saying, and then obviously felt bad about it after I was explained, you know, use that. My mom, she wouldn't use language like that, but she definitely had a lot of internalized racist ideas. In the late 80s or so, my mom went back to college. She dropped out when I was born, and then she ended up going to grad school and becoming optometrist, and we ended up moving to Arkansas, 1991 or so, when she finished up her school. I remember distinctly, probably around 91 or so, I was about 13, I was just starting to hit puberty, just sort of immediately thinking something was I don't know if I would have even described it as something being wrong because I didn't like I didn't have anything to compare it to when you're 13 and you really haven't had any sex talks or really any sort of description. Nobody's telling you what's supposed to be happening. And it's not like you're talking about the stuff with other kids most of the time. So I had nothing to compare it to. I was just having a lot of weird feelings about starting puberty. I would have these dreams where I would be a girl. At a certain point, I started actually praying, and I wasn't like a particularly religious kid. We weren't particularly religious at that point. We didn't go to church, but I still loosely believed that there was a God. 
falling asleep at night, praying that I would wake up a woman. And again, I had nothing to compare this to. This wasn't the sort of thing you talked about with other people, much less the other kids, especially if you're the kind of kid who's maybe getting picked on a little bit and has moved around a lot and doesn't necessarily know any kids that well, doesn't have any really close friends. It's just not something you talk about. So you really had no outlet. I was just like, maybe this is just normal. This is just the thing that every 13-year-old does. I didn't have any idea. This was early 90s. The internet didn't really exist. There was no way for me to do any research on this. Even if you'd taken me to the library and said I could research the subject, I didn't know words like transsexual or transgender or anything like that. How was I supposed to look that up or research it? So I just sort of assumed that I was normal. Well, and this kind of speaks to the need for diverse education, like sex education that's comprehensive in schools. For sure, because nobody tells you any of that stuff. Especially back then, nobody told you any of that stuff. If you're a a gay kid or you're a trans kid or you're otherwise queer in some way, like if you're not getting any sex education or the sex education you're getting is completely organized around being straight and cisgender, when you start having these feelings, you have no way to judge any of that or understand it in any sort of context. I certainly spent a lot of time sort of freaking out about it because I didn't know anything about what I was doing or how to process any of that. Over time, we moved around a few times. We finally settled near Little Rock when I was probably about 14 or so. And my parents had started a business. My mom had started an optometry office and they were trying to build that practice up and they were gone a lot, which gave me a lot of time to myself. I would come home after school. They would not be home for hours. Like most 14-year-old kids, I just started going through people's stuff. Right, just looking through your parents' room. Yeah, yeah, I'd go through my parents' stuff or whatever because you're curious and there's nobody there to tell you not to. And so one day I found a book on human sexuality that my parents had clearly not wanted anybody to find because it wasn't on the bookshelf out in the living room. It was stuffed back in a cabinet in the bathroom all the way at the back in like a corner. It wasn't a big book. It was probably only a couple hundred pages long. It was old, like early 90s. It was probably something that had been published in like maybe the 70s. So the book had a lot of chapters on different kinds of human sexuality and things. They had exactly one chapter on trans people. And of course, in the nomenclature of the 70s, they had a chapter about transsexual people. I wouldn't say the book treated the trans people great. It wasn't a super positive representation of being trans, but the person was, at least by the standards of the time the book was written, trying to be kind of a neutral party, trying to describe being trans. Okay, so like it wasn't the worst thing in the world, but it it also was kind of something you would expect from that period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they definitely kind of had stuff where they talked a lot about, well, it's super sad that we can't get help for these people to fix them or whatever. They didn't exactly use words like mutilate or anything, but they were definitely kind of like, oh, this is a weird thing that people are doing to their bodies. There definitely was a little bit of an attitude about that. Right, Um, so it was kind of pathologizing it like we did with gay people for so many years. Yeah, and I mean, of course, that was still pretty common when that book came out too, pathologizing gay people. But they were trying to describe it as neutrally as possible. But even as a 14-year-old, I got the sense that this person was judging being trans Basically, as soon as I read that chapter, I went, oh, it was pretty instantaneous. So that was kind of your epiphany moment. Yeah, I was like, this is an exact description of how I've been feeling for like several years. And I mean, it kind of scared me, especially because of the low-key negativity in the book. This this seems scary. Like, is this what I'm going to have to do? Am I going to have to do surgeries? What is my life going to look like? Right. And how are people going to judge you? How do your parents handle it? How are people going to respond to this? 
And of course, I was already a nerd in school. Like I was the kid who played a lot of video games and read fantasy novels and sat in the corner. I was not exactly a popular kid. So I, it was like, oh, I don't really know that I want to add this to my list. I kept going back to it. I read that chapter over and over again. And it was probably a few months to maybe a year after I first found that book. I'd been trying to like discuss the idea with my parents, like maybe bring it up, see what they thought about it. And there never really was a chance to bring this up or talk about it. The only other examples I ever saw of trans people were usually like things like Jerry Springer and other talk shows. I'm not sure if Jerry Springer was on the air quite yet, but you know, those episodes of talk shows that would bring on trans people and kind of. Right. So really sensational and exploitative. I don't like necessarily blame your trans person who showed up on those shows. I mean, it was still visibility, even if it wasn't great visibility, it was probably better than nothing. But yeah, those shows definitely were exploiting trans people for ratings and not treating us all that great. I was probably about 14 or 15 at the time. And there was an episode of a medical drama. I think it was like Chicago Hope or one of those. So there was an episode where there was a character who was a trans woman. And I don't remember the plot exactly, but she was dating one of the doctors who was the main character in the show. And she was, she was stealth. She wasn't out publicly. And so they had started dating and she runs into one of the doctors who'd done some of her surgery. And the doctor says, you know, it's not my place to tell you how to live your life, but you really shouldn't keep this from the person you're dating. So she eventually tells the guy that she's trans and he kind of freaks out a little bit. And he apologizes, but he can't get over the fact that she's trans. And then they break up at the end of the episode. And he's just like, I wish you didn't tell me because I can't get past this. For the 90s, that was a fairly positive portrayal. I mean, the guy didn't do anything bad. Legitimately, it felt he was like, I care about you. I want to be with you, but I just can't get past this moment. And so the way the, way the episode handled it, I actually thought was good for the time, at least. The bad guy was kind of his own internal hangups and transphobia and not being able to get past who she was in order to have a relationship that he clearly liked. It was a poignant episode to talk about those issues. And we were sitting there. I was watching it and my mom was in the room was watching it. And I kind of just said something. I was just kind of testing the water. At the time, we weren't super religious or going to church or anything. So I didn't really have any idea what my mom's take on this kind of stuff would be. So I just kind of was like, well, that's a really sad thing that he couldn't get past that hang up. And my mom was just kind of like, what are you talking about? Those people are gross. You know, Uh I'm not, I mean, I'm paraphrasing there. I don't, obviously this was almost 30 years ago, so I don't remember the exact words, but she basically just laid into trans people and talked about how, how we were gross and weird and disgusting. That was kind of the end of that. I immediately just kind of pulled back into myself, was like, well, I can't talk about this with them. I just kind of shut down. This definitely was like the beginning of a lot of problems between myself and my parents. Like I said, I was already kind of picked on at school. I didn't fit in very well, even though I wasn't out as trans. And I mean, I was in denial and didn't even really, like, I wasn't even sure if I was trans in a way. I just knew that these things hit home with me. But I feel like a lot of the kids in my life maybe honed in on things, ways in which I was not particularly gender conforming, perhaps. It just didn't fit in. So I'd already had a tendency to just kind of shut down my emotions when I was younger, because that's how you get through junior high and high school is just kind of keep your head down. You know, up to that point, I had at least felt like, well, you know, I have my parents 
this is my safe place is at home around my family and then that was kind of gone um after that that moment where i didn't feel like home was any longer like a safe place where i could be myself well i mean you're you're now getting to be what like 15 16 in your story and you have literally zero <laughs> community yeah i was living in a small town in arkansas i mean we lived on a dirt road at that time <laughs> There was not a lot of places you could go, community that you could find. And I certainly wasn't feeling like I was going to get that from my family. So I definitely started acting out a lot more, being a lot more distant and perhaps difficult. I was 15-ish, maybe 16 at the time. We stopped to get gas at a gas station. And I saw some adult magazines in that gas station. If you live in Arkansas at that time, it's kind of more a puritanical area. A lot of times you wouldn't see adult magazines even in a place like a gas station in Arkansas, at least not places we lived. So we were at this gas station in the middle of nowhere, you know, long ways away from anywhere where I live. So I, I tried to grab a magazine and steal it. They obviously weren't going to sell it to me because I wasn't old enough. I got caught because I was not good at stealing. I didn't get in any trouble, which is definitely a very white privilege thing. They didn't call the cops on me or anything. They basically just took the magazine back and told my parents, who had been concerned about some of my acting up, out and stuff out of, up to this point. They decided that I was on the road to becoming a career criminal. They literally said that to me. They were concerned, but I, not in a particularly healthy way. Instead of sitting me down and trying to have a conversation with me about why I was feeling the way I was feeling, it was just, you're a bad kid and we're going to fix you. You know, that just sort of deepens our divide. But they decided the way to fix me was to take me to church. So we hadn't been a church-going family. They were, you know, they went to church when they were young, but they hadn't been a church-going family for three years and years since before I was born. And we're going to go back to church and that's going to fix your moral problems. So as you can imagine, it was a Methodist church, not like super right-wing exactly. It was also in a small town. It was a fairly conservative community. I wasn't happy to go at first, and, and certainly bringing me into a, a place where homophobia and transphobia was not just acceptable, but was like practically required to get in the door, wasn't exactly a, a great move. But of course, they didn't know anything about any of that because I hadn't told them because I was scared to tell them. They took me to church. You have to understand about me at that time, like, even though I'd been acting out and I was like kind of angry at a lot of stuff, ultimately I was very much a people pleaser and I very, very much wanted to fit in. And I very, very much wanted my parents to think I was a good person. And it seemed like they didn't think I was a good person. So after a certain period of time, I really threw myself into being a religious person, threw myself into it completely because one, I thought it would make my parents like me again because it didn't seem like they did. And two, because I was a very picked on a teenager who didn't have a lot of friends and didn't get along with a lot of people. And it looked like religion was kind of a ready-made social group where people, you know, they had to be nice to me, which you're required to do as a Christian. You know, how naive I was, but like, yeah, I'll go to these churches and people will, will accept me, they'll be nice to me, they'll like me. I 
so I really threw myself into that throughout the last couple of years in high school. I threw out all my secular albums and I prayed and I really believed that God had cured me of being trans and it cured me of those desires or whatever. I graduated high school and I started college in 97, believing that all of that stuff was behind me and that I was now a good person. So when I got to college, my orientation week, I met a couple of people who were involved in a campus ministry called Student Mobilization. If you haven't heard of them, they're sort of vaguely similar to maybe Campus Crusade. They have a lot of chapters and schools in Arkansas and Texas and a few other places. And they were very, very missionary oriented. And so I became deeply enmeshed in that the first couple of years. The first summer after my freshman year, I went to a summer thing where you'd go to Florida. It was called Kaleo. You'd spend the summer on the beach in Florida. You were set up, you had like a job, Bible studies. And then like on Sunday, you would walk down the beach and find random people to evangelize. (laughs) Cold turkey evangelism. You can imagine People are coming down to the Florida beach in the summer to vacation and some asshole 20-year-old shows up and says, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. It wasn't like it didn't go well most of the time. That's very wild. And also, I just want to point out to folks that in your agenda, you mentioned that you were so into this that you actually majored in religious studies. Yeah, I did. I, I was planning on becoming a pastor or a youth minister or even like a overseas missionary. That was a big thing that Stumo really encouraged people to become overseas missionaries. I was majoring in religious studies and gave a lot of my teachers really huge headaches because I would always argue with them about things. I argued with my biology teacher about creationism, which in retrospect is incredibly embarrassing. My, most of my religion professors were of a much more re- liberal variety of religious person. So I argued with them a lot. The second summer after my sophomore year, I went back to Kaleo again. But after my third year, I spent the summer in India for two months. Interestingly enough, that kind of ended up being the beginning of the end for my religious beliefs. I'd been challenged by a lot of my professors over things like biblical inerrancy and stuff and mostly didn't believe them. There was a lot of good evidence on their side for their positions throughout my first three years of school. But over the summer when I went to India, like I said, the first two years I'd gone to Kaleo and had been part of the campus ministry I was involved in. So I knew everybody, I kind of knew their philosophy and their theology, how they looked at religion and everything. But this year that I went to India, I ended up going with a completely different group. It was not connected to student mobilization. I did not realize that when I signed up and when I got on the mission trip, but this group, it wasn't explicitly a Pentecostal type organization, but it had a lot of Pentecostals worth on the group. You know the difference between like a mainline Methodist or Baptist and being a Pentecostal? It's a really huge freaking difference in terms of theology. I got over there and there were people like speaking in tongues. One of the uh, guys in our group caught a cold three or four weeks in. He got sick and was sick for a few days. You know, my attitude was, okay, he is in a strange country, exposed to a lot of new germs. He caught something and we're going to let him rest and drink plenty of fluids and he'll be better in a few days. Several of the other people in the group thought I was essentially being too science-minded and the real 
that reason why he was sick was because he was being oppressed by demons and they needed to pray over him to fix his demonic yeah get rid of the demons okay um, anoint him with oil and pray over him in tongues and all that kind of stuff until the demon goes away and he feels better yeah. right in two to three days <laughs> i was kind of blown for a loop with this stuff there were some people who were only there the first month and some people who were there the second month i was there both months so after the first month was over, some people left and some new people came in and I was having a conversation with some people. We were staying at a, uh, like a YMCA and uh, there was another group of missionary guys there and we started having a conversation and I started talking about this and these were big in the spirit speaking in tongues kind of people and they were like, oh, we can pray over you and you'll get the gift of speaking in tongues. It's super easy. They started praying over me to be able to speak in tongues. I was sitting there and they all had their hands on me, surrounding me on this chair in the, in the sitting area and nothing was happening. I was just sitting there and they were praying over me and they were saying, oh, this is happening. You can speak in tongues. And so I just started babbling nonsensically. Just go with uh, it. <laughs> nothing was happening. I assumed these guys, they had the Holy Spirit. These people would know I was faking because they had a, a window into that. And they'd know and they'd be disappointed, but at least they'd like just go away and leave me alone at that point because it was super awkward. But instead, they all believed it. And they were like, oh, this is so great. You're speaking in tongues. And they were super excited about it. And I walked back to my room and went, what the hell just happened? And so when I got back from that summer and started sort of reflecting on those moments, it really started to hit me that these people were certain that God was telling them to do X and that God was giving them X gifts and that they could do these things. And they believed it all. But my experience was real living proof that they had no clue what they were talking about. It started to occur to me because my freshman year, for instance, I had decided that God was telling me that I should be a music major, despite the fact that I had very little background in music on a professional level. Like I play guitar, but I wasn't an expert. I didn't read music that well. I did well for a couple of semesters until music theory got kind of advanced. I ended up failing the class and having to switch my major. And I was thinking, boy, I was really, really certain that God was telling me to do this. And in retrospect, it just looked like a thing I wanted to do. And I, you know, justified it in my mind as being something God wanted me to do. And so I was like, if these guys can be so certain that God is telling them to do stuff and they're just believing whatever. And if I can be so certain God is telling me to do stuff and then it's just me wanting to do whatever. What is going on here? It really left me with a lot of doubts. How are you supposed to actually know if this is real or if this is just in your mind, if it is functionally indistinguishable? Over the next couple of years, as I was finishing up my degree, this was weighing on me pretty heavily. And as a result, I started paying a lot more attention to my teachers those last couple of years. And I started to realize believing the Bible is inerrant doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I started really pulling back. It didn't help that around this time, the guy who had been in charge of student mobilization at the school I was in, he retired, went on to like a different job or something, and a new guy took over. A guy I knew who had just graduated from the same college I was going to and was taking over, he was the same age as me. He didn't really like me, probably because I didn't fit in very well. I was a bit of a, an introvert to begin with, so things like cold turkey evangelism were not things I really enjoyed all that much. I was not happy with a lot of that stuff. It was very into this thing called process evangelism, which I won't go into the, like all the details, but basically it just sounded like using people. 
a lot of people weren't particularly happy with that stuff. And so I kind of got pushed out. I've been part of like the worship team and stuff on our the monthly meeting that we've done. And he just kind of pushed me out. So I had a lot more spare time on my hands. I wasn't as involved with the campus ministry. I was finishing up my major. I really just started to have more and more doubts about a lot of the conclusions I'd reached, which was scary to me because, as we talked about earlier, I was a religious studies major who was planning on becoming a pastor when I graduated. And now I was sitting there going, what do I do? Do I become a pastor and be dishonest so that I can make a living? Like, am I too honest for that? I don't think I can do that. And all your college experience was wrapped up in this. Not just my major, but all of my extracurriculars and everything were centered around this stuff, which was not applicable to literally anything else. And so I got out of college and had no idea what I was going to do. But I ended up moving back with my parents, which was pretty traumatic. I didn't necessarily realize how traumatic it was at the time. In retrospect, I realized there was a big reason that I had chosen to go on these trips every summer so I could be around my parents as little as possible. Definitely played into why I made a lot of those decisions. Even when I was in college, I would have these bouts where I would have moments of dysphoria I'd have friends and they'd notice, I haven't seen you in like a week because I would just go to classes and go to lunch and then I would just go back to my room and be by myself because I didn't want to be around anybody else. I mean, I'm an introvert already to begin with, but those moments where I was feeling that way, like I just wanted people to be away from me. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to be around anybody. I would have these moments like that. When I got out of college, I didn't have a job. I didn't have any plans. My parents had told me that I needed to go to college because, you know, what do you want to do? Work in a factory. And so then I got out of college and I moved home and I was trying to look for work. I applied for a few churches, but I was not really feeling it. I was not really interested in getting those jobs. And I feel like the people I interviewed with could tell that. And eventually my parents were like, just get a job at anything. What are you too good to work in a factory now? Well, yeah, I mean, I thought that I was. That was why I went to college. I don't know what's going on here. Nothing makes sense anymore. So I did end up working a few months in a factory. And then I worked at Walmart as a cashier for a while. I even worked as a secretary at my parents' office for a while as well. And I moved out of my parents' place. I moved back several times, back and forth. Finally got a job that was a little bit more decent than some of the other jobs that I'd been working when I I started working for Geek Squad in like the mid-2000s. And I was in my like late 20s by this point, and I'd gone through just various bouts of dysphoria. I hadn't really told anyone about it. There were a couple of exceptions. When I was feeling depressed, my parents suggested I go see a therapist. We didn't have a lot of money, but there was like a therapy program for people in low-income situations, and I managed to go see a therapist for a while. And after we had been talking for a few sessions, I was able to talk to him about deciding I wasn't religious anymore, things that I was not able to tell my parents about at that point. You know, we got to the heart of the matter and I told him I, I thought I might be trans. And then I, I kind of freaked out and didn't go back to him again. I was afraid of trying to deal with it. And I was definitely afraid of how my parents would react. By that point, I had told them that I was no longer a Christian and they didn't take that well. Well, I mean, but, how did your therapist react when you disclosed this? They were supportive. He, he did have clients who were gay or trans and, and he could help me. But I was too scared to accept that help at that time. I mean, again, I was living in Arkansas still partially financially dependent on my parents. This is one of the periods when I was living in their house. I was like 25, 26 at the time, and I just was not, I guess, not ready. I don't know. I kind of just kind of ran away. 
you know, I told him that I, I thought I was trans, but I still wasn't really ready to admit that to myself. So, you know, he got me to be real for a second and then it kind of scared me and I didn't want to talk about it anymore. I didn't certainly didn't want to admit it. I wanted to crawl back inside and, oh, that was a mistake. I, I'm not really trans. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think it's a hard thing maybe for some people to understand. Like it's not like an on off switch where you just like you, you click it on and you just understand it. You know, self delusion is a pretty powerful thing. Well, it's like you're saying you were growing up yeah. without a framework with no yeah. definitions, with a part of a book that you found in your parents' bathroom that basically right. had some minor description of it. That wasn't even that positive that would kind of make you think, I hope that's not me, but it sounds like me. And then yeah. you have this whole experience of seeing these caricatures on television, right? That are like these exaggerated right. portrayals of what it means to be mm-hmm. trans. And then you have this one episode of something that seems empathetic and then the person gets rejected. And then you try to have a conversation with someone who you trust and who is there for you and cares about you and literally your whole support system. And they basically say that is disgusting Then you get thrown into a church, which is like the worst thing in the world for somebody that comes out of LGBTQA plus community. You know, at this point, you find a therapist who says, I can help you with this. We can work with this. And you're just, I don't even know if I want to be who I am, I would think. My only other exposure was trying to, you know, look up information about being trans on like the internet in, in college and stuff. And again, this was late 90s, early 2000s. Finding information on the stuff, even on the internet, was pretty hard. Like you could maybe find some message boards for trans people that were cloistered away in some corner of the internet if you spent a lot of time on Google searching for stuff like that. It was very hard to get any detailed information, any real conversations. And you didn't know who you could reach out to. I mean, doctors, you've got plenty of horror stories from trans people trying to get treatment and doctors not understanding, therapists not understanding. How do you deal with this? How do you proceed? By that point, I was so deeply closeted within myself that it was hard for me to really deal with that. Shortly after that, and I moved out, I started playing an MMO at the time. It was popular at the time. I started playing Final Fantasy XI. One of the friends that I made on there was a, a woman we became friends in the same uh, link shell, which is like a guild. And she was just sort of coming to terms with the fact that she was gay or, or at least bisexual. She was kind of like figuring that out about herself. And so we ended up having a lot of conversations about those things. And at some point, I tried to talk to her about me maybe being trans. And she just kind of shot me down. I don't think she was trying to be mean. It was just she didn't really understand what it was. And so she didn't really like handle it very well. And those are the only two times I mentioned it to anyone until I finally came out to my wife when I was 38, 39 years old. I just kind of dug back into myself and pretended it wasn't real. Growing up, 
growing up, I was religious, and then I wasn't religious, and then I was trying to figure out my, my gender identity. So I had not done a lot of dating. I, did, I wasn't good at relationships. I was already pretty introverted, and asking people out was not exactly something I was great at. I was in my early 30s when I moved to Phoenix, and my parents were moving out there for a job, and I moved out there because I didn't want to stay in Arkansas. That was the year when I finally started getting the wherewithal to try to like better myself. At that point, I'd just been working at Geek Squad for a couple of years, just frustrated and didn't have any friends and didn't have much going on. I'd watched a lot of anime in my 20s. Because of that, I decided it would be really cool to teach English in Japan. I applied, I did an interview over the phone, and they hired me to teach English there. And so I flew out to teach English in Japan about 2008, and I was there for about a year. Japan's a nice place. I, I don't, it's not a great place to be transgender either. The homophobia and transphobia there is, it's not the same kind of homophobia and transphobia you get in the U.S. because so much of it here has its roots in religion and Christianity specifically. And that's not a big part of their culture. Part of the Japanese culture is being very traditional and following a, a very set path for marriage and kids done the way that it's sort of prescribed by the societies. It's a thing that's very confusing. If you step outside of those lines and that culture, most people just don't get it. Yeah, I still wasn't out at the time, but I was there for a year. I had thought about staying longer, but this was right around the big housing market crash. Negative effects in Japan, too. They cut a lot of English teaching jobs there, which tends to be the first kind of teaching jobs that get cut whenever there's an economic downturn. So I ended up coming back home. I definitely was a lot more confident and sure of myself after that. I was actually taking some Japanese classes to improve my language skills. I was thinking about going back at the time. I started dating. I dated this woman I met in the, my Japanese class. One thing I, I will mention here is that my parents had always been religious and kind of vaguely conservative. The time frame when I was in Japan was 2008-2009, right when the election for Obama happened. While I was gone in Japan, my parents got very, very into Fox News. My parents have always been difficult. And we had always had these like problems. I'll straight up say at this point, my parents were at least kind of abusive. They spanked me when I was a kid with a belt. The last time my parents spanked me with a belt was when I was 15 or 16. So yeah, we had a lot of problems and unresolved issues. When I came back from Japan, they were worse. They had really devolved into conspiracy theories and Obama as a socialist and all of that kind of stuff. What was worse, though, was one of my younger sisters, our middle child, I was the oldest, and then I had a, two younger sisters, one who's 12 years younger than me and one who's 19 years younger than me. The youngest was still pretty young. Our middle child was just about to graduate high school. Before I'd left to Japan, she'd actually come out to me as being bisexual herself, a thing that she definitely wasn't going to tell our parents. And in fact, I heard from her later on that when she finally told them that she was gay, they had told her that they would have sent her to one of those re-education camps if they'd known about it before she was 18 and they could have forced her into one. But I, I had known about it for a long time. But she was about to graduate and she eventually came out as, as a lesbian. She realized she was not bi, she was just gay. But at the same time she was figuring that out, she was weirdly buying into a lot of the right-wing stuff about Obama. And this was a mix of my parents' influence, but also the influence of this teacher she became friends with and when she was in high school, which a lot of weirdness there. 
it was an uncomfortable sure. situation that I thought was weird. It was weird enough that the principal of the school fired the guy after the year my sister graduated, specifically because he thought the teacher's friendship with my sister was inappropriate. My parents loved this guy. They invited him into their home. They treated him better than they ever treated me. It wasn't a situation I was particularly happy with. And as far as I know, they're still great friends with this guy. He was very conservative and he convinced my sister to be very conservative. She went through a period of time where she was very right wing. Despite being a lesbian, she voted for Michelle Bachman in the primaries in the 2012 election. She hates my guts now. She won't speak to me or have anything to do with me. She argues very strongly that I basically made up all the homophobia and transphobia expressed by our parents and that I'm completely wrong about all of it. I mean, is she saying that your parents are welcoming to that? Her exact words the last time we spoke, which wasn't really a conversation, it was more just her yelling things at me, that our parents had quote-unquote mellowed on the gay thing since back then. I don't know what mellowed means, but that's intentionally very vague in my opinion. But regardless, my parents started becoming much more conservative, much more right-wing. Anytime I came over to their house, they had Fox News on. Bill O'Reilly was like the fourth member of the Trinity for them. We obviously started fighting much more. This was ironically around the time that I was becoming more politically engaged and moving further to the left. We started fighting a lot if I was around them at all, which I tried to stay away from them as much as I could. During this time, I was really starting to realize that my parents were toxic and it had a bad influence on my life in terms of how they had treated me. I still really hadn't dealt with being trans. I would have these periods where my dysphoria would crop up and I would have to try to like deal with it, but I still didn't want to admit that I was trans. I mean, I was hitting my early 30s and I really just, I wanted to like get married. I wanted to settle down. I wanted to have a kid. Like these were things that I wanted. And being trans definitely was something that would, I felt like would interfere with that. It would make it impossible for me to do those things, which I realize now is not entirely true, but at the time it's the way it felt. And so I just kept convincing myself, oh, that's not real. Then I met Megan, my wife. We actually met on OkCupid in uh, 2012. We went on one date and it was very successful. We started going out. I mean, our relationship moved pretty fast actually. We started dating in like October, I think. And by the next March, we were engaged. And then she found out she was pregnant with our daughter in April. In February, like a month before we actually ended up getting engaged, she's a Montessori teacher and she went to a continuing education conference and she was not happy with her current job. And she was looking at the job fair that was at the conference and she got invited to come out and do a job interview for a job here in Oakland and was like, I know we've only been dating like four months, but I may be going to be offered this job in, in Oakland. Would you want to move with me? It wasn't like I was super attached to hanging around my family or anything. And so I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll move to Oakland with you. We moved out here in that summer. I mean, we'd been engaged for about three months at that time. We both packed up our places and we moved out here and our daughter was born that December and we got married the next March on the, we set the wedding date for like the anniversary of when I proposed. I finally had all of the things that I had, had said I, I wanted to do and all those things that I'd convinced myself, well, I'll be happy if I, if I get all these things. I'm not really trans. If these things happen, I'm going to feel better about myself. But I still was struggling a lot with not being happy all the time and being kind of depressed about the stuff and having bouts of dysphoria pop up. 
Also, this is around the time that I finally cut off contact with my parents. A week before our wedding, we had invited all of our family to the wedding. Everyone was coming except for the middle sister who already wouldn't talk to me at that point. My mom sent a letter to Megan, my, my wife, um, a week before our wedding. And the contents of this letter, which my wife, of course, showed me, was basically warning her about how much of a terrible person I was. If you can imagine your own mom sending a letter to your fiance saying, this person's kind of terrible and maybe you need to be prepared to like deal with their terribleness. Accused me of being emotionally manipulative, accused me of being emotionally abusive. Basically all the things that my mom kind of does and is. She had been very great at gaslighting people in our lives, doing terrible things and then claiming she had no idea what anybody was talking about after she did them. So she sent this letter and I was angry. Like they had always been kind of harsh on me all the way up into my 30s. They were still bringing up the time I stole that porn magazine and telling me that they saved me from a life of a career criminal by, you know, I was 35 years old and they were telling me, boy, it's a good thing that we took you to church or you would have been a criminal. And it was like, oh my God, why are you trying to make me feel terrible about myself? Why are you making me feel shitty? Not to mention that that's just a huge exaggeration because I'm pretty sure lots there's been lots of teenagers who stole porn magazines who grew up to be perfectly normal human beings. So they sent this letter and I was I was so angry. I wanted to just call my mom right then and say, do not come to the wedding. But Megan was like, you know, if you work things out, you're going to feel bad. But she wasn't there later. And so I said, okay, you're right. If we fix things, I'll feel bad if she wasn't at my wedding. So I didn't call her. They did come to the wedding. But I also avoided the crap out of them during that wedding because I was still pissed that I didn't want to yell at them or something. I just kind of let it go and I forgot about it. A few months later, we were coming out to visit Megan's parents for Christmas. They were, we were going to stay with her parents, but my parents live in the same town, so we were going to visit them. I called my mom to make some sort of plans about us meeting, and it devolved into a fight. She ended up getting mad that I avoided her during the wedding. And I was like, well, you know why I avoided you. And she tried to play it off like she had no idea what had happened. And I brought up the letter and she then tried to argue that it's a totally justified thing for her to do. So I was just like, well, I'm done. And I sent her a text after that telling that she was not welcome to come over, that we were not going to see them then or ever again. And then she tried to show up anyway. She showed up at, at my in-law's house over Christmas, tried to bully her way into seeing her grandchild, and brought a big stack of emails between me and her that she wanted to show to our in-laws to show what a terrible person I was. <laughs> That's really, I, I, like, I don't <laughs> even know what to say to that. Yep. <laughs> She, she printed off a huge stack of emails from communications between me and her where we had argued or disagreed about things like politics or whatever and wanted to show them to them to prove that I was a toxic person, that I was mean or bad or mean to her. Megan kind of went off on them and told them to get out. And that was, that was the last time I spoke to my parents. After that, they would try to call me. I had to change my phone number. They'd try to mail me things, that kind of stuff. But uh, eventually it, it dropped off. In fact, after I came out as trans, since I changed my name, uh, they never contacted me again. I think getting distance from my parents and finally separating myself from them completely and not, I was finally able to like not worry about how they would react or feel. 
And I was with a person who I was finally able to sort of trust. It took a while. I feel like we'd gotten married pretty quickly, but we, after we'd been together several years, I really got to a point where I was like, this is a person I can trust. This is a person who's not going to judge me or, or mistreat me the way I'd kind of been used to within my own family. I finally got to a point where I was dealing with it. It was coming back up over and over again, my dysphoria. I could feel even Megan was noticing, like the things were kind of weird between us. After I came out and we were talking about it, she admitted it felt like I was holding something back for, of myself and she was concerned. When I finally came out, our, our daughter was taking a nap or something and we were laying on the bed together. I said, I, you know, I've got something I need to tell you. And I just kind of like worded it out. There wasn't really any way to step around it carefully. I was just like, I think I might not be a, a guy. She thought I was holding something back. She was not expecting that. Um, but we talked about it. She was just kind of okay with it. I mean, I, I won't say that like there was definitely some growing pains trying to figure things out. But honestly, she was pretty amazing about the whole process. She was better about gendering me correctly than I was. I messed up more often than she did using my dead name, et cetera, et cetera. Like I would mess up and she, she would get it right every time. So we talked about it and I eventually came out on Facebook and I told her family. They've been pretty great about it. There's been some growing pains there too, but mostly they've tried to be supportive. Initially, her family probably thought that we were going to not stay together. I don't think like it ever even occurred to them that their daughter might not be 100% straight or that she'd be cool staying in that, um, in that relationship. The first year we went to, to visit her family after I came out and I was just starting the transition. She and her mom went out to have a mother-daughter day or whatever. When they, they came back, my, Megan told me, yeah, my mom asked me, are you going to be okay without having sex? <laughs> oh my God. So she thought like she wasn't, you all weren't going to be <laughs> physical anymore. Right, right. And, and uh, Megan was like, you know, that two women can have sex, right? <laughs> like, Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess she was willing to have a conversation, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess that's something. Her parents are definitely like, they'll say supportive. Oh yeah, like gay people should be able to get married and that kind of stuff. But it's it's also just not a thing they've thought about at all or really tried to wrap their heads around. So like, I just don't, I don't know. (laughs) It didn't occur to them. Yeah, but I also, you know, good for for her parents for being supportive and staying there and being there for you both. Yeah, uh, we've handled all of that pretty well. One of the things I will say that I've been extraordinarily lucky about in terms of medical care and transitioning, when I first came out to her, I mean, I was 39, I think, at the time. I just had no idea about how any of that worked. I had friends on Facebook who were trans and who had managed to transition and stuff, but I really had no idea how you would approach any of that. We had insurance with Kaiser. I just called up their like 1-800 number and was like, I'm trans. I'd like to find out what you guys cover in terms of like transitioning. And they were like, here, let me get you the phone number for our transitions department. Hell, I know a lot of trans people who would be surprised to find they just have a, um, a department. <laughs> so, big old shout out for Kaiser. 
<laughs> yeah, in Oakland, they just have one of their medical offices right next to the, the main hospital here, this place with all the doctor's offices. You go in there, it's a transitions department. They just have people that help you do that. And so I made an appointment. It was a couple of months out, but then they had a cancellation. So I ended up going in and after a couple of weeks, I talked to a therapist and then they were like, you know, um, we operate on a informed consent model. You don't need to see a therapist. You don't need to get any letters of recommendation or whatever. You want to go on hormones? I will make an appointment with an endocrinologist right now. And so I started hormones and I started getting hair removal treatments two months after I came out, two or three months later, I was already doing that stuff. And then they covered surgeries and, and everything. So it was pretty amazing. I've watched in a lot of trans people struggle having to crowdfund money to get their surgeries and everything. For me, it was literally like, I want to have a surgery. And they were like, when do you want to schedule it? I was scared about the surgeries, especially the bottom surgery, which I just had about four months ago now. The actual most difficult and excruciating part of the transition was the hair removal. Hands down <laughs> for my face, they had to do laser for like a year. But then I also had some gray hairs and some stubborn hairs that the laser wouldn't deal with. So I had to do electrolysis. So I was doing electrolysis on my face for about three years, once every couple of weeks to a month or two. For a while, while, I was trying to get rid of all these gray hairs that I had on my neck. I would go in and do like a two-hour session of electrolysis every couple of weeks for several months. When I started getting prepared for bottom surgery, I found out that you have to do electrolysis on your genitals because you have to remove hair down there because a lot of things that are on the outside suddenly move to the inside and you don't want hair there. <laughs> I guess this is the part of the podcast for folks who are curious. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm open about that stuff mostly. As long as somebody's not trying to like demand. I had a, a guy the other day on a, a comment section, you know, the typical transphobe. It's like, oh, gendered you correctly. But I just need you to know that I don't really think you're a woman. And then they're like biology and blah, blah, blah. And then they start asking all these invasive questions about my genitals and stuff. And I'm just like, that's none of your business, dude. Like, <laughs> I don't know you. Wow. You know? Hey, let me just insult you, pretend yeah. that I'm respecting you, and then ask you a bunch of crap I'm not entitled to know. And then I, I was rude to him, and he was like, but I've been nothing but polite. Why are you being so rude to me? <laughs> okay. I told you that even though I don't believe anything you're saying, I'll still act like it's true. What more do you want from me? <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Like laying there for an hour or so at a time. Because electrolysis, if you've ever had it done on any part of your body, you know, it's, it's an electric shock on an individual hair, and then you yank that hair out, and then you move on to the next one over and over again. Wow. And so, yeah. For it's two hours. For, for, for like an hour at a time, two hours at a time. It's, you take pain medication and, and, and rub a lot of numbing cream on the area before you go in, but it, you still feel it. <laughs> like, right. And so my takeaway is that you don't transition <laughs> on a whim. No, you do not. The surgery by comparison, I'm sure if I'd been awake, it would have hurt, like, you know, but I was, I was <laughs> out the whole time. You know? I have some friends who are trans who have actually had surgery and posted updates. You know, they always give like a little bit of a warning and tell folks, yeah. you know, if you're squeamish, but they'll talk about it online and give details for anybody that wants to read it for other people that are transitioning or people who are just curious about it to give more information. So I definitely appreciate the people who are open and willing to talk about it because I understand that there is no obligation to inform people on this. 
that's a thing too that I think a yeah. lot of folks don't understand like you were describing some people feel like <clears throat> for whatever reason it's their right to ask about these really invasive medical questions about these surgeries and it really isn't and, and if, if yeah, somebody's and like, comfortable sharing that information totally okay absolutely never ask a cis person they'll ask a trans person and it's like why don't you walk up to a stranger on the street and ask them how their penis is doing like you know exactly see how they how they react to that i especially want to be open just because i know like there are going to be people who listen who maybe are trans themselves and are thinking about getting a surgery or wondering whether they should or you know wondering how to proceed i didn't know any of this stuff going into it and so it, it really helps to hear to know how it feels and to not be too worried about it because i know i was super scared when i went into surgery but then i woke up and i was fine I mean, I was in a hospital for five or six days after the surgery. They would have let me go home, but I preferred to stay in so that they could watch me and see if there were any problems or whatever. Because the first five days or before, like all the packing and everything comes out and I, I'm extremely squeamish about blood. So I did not want to have to deal with any of that myself. So I just stayed in a hospital bed for six days and then they took the packing out and then I went home and it took a couple of months for like the swelling to all go down and stuff. But I'm four months out at this point and I feel pretty normal most of the time. So it's really interesting to me when I read things um, from my trans friends online and they make me think about things I wouldn't even notice. So today, one of my friends posted that she came across some old photos of herself when she was little. And she said it was like looking at an image of herself dressed up as an avatar she never liked and said that she envied cis people the experience of being able to look at a photo of yourself in the past and say, you know, that's me and have this sort of linear relation to your name and to your image that she feels is lacking with herself. You know, I understand not every trans person is going to have the same experience and that was her experience, but it really made me think. You know, I'm still friends with some of the people I went to college with. Most of the people I've stayed friends with are all people who either had similar experiences to me in regards to like leaving the religion or at least have become like more liberal about their religious beliefs. Even with the like more liberal uh, people, like if we'll get together or talk online or something like that, they look back at their time in college like these are really fun memories. These are really great things. Let's reminisce about that stuff. And I don't think they entirely necessarily grasp how bittersweet a lot of that stuff is for me. Obviously, like, I'm not religious anymore, so there's that aspect of it. But also, like, I was living kind of a lie. I was lying to myself, and there's just a lot of frustration there where it's hard to be 100% stoked or happy about those memories and reminiscing about my days in college because it's like, oh, that person was a very different person than the person today. Well, I'm really glad that the person that is you today was willing to come on and talk to me about all of this. So I just want to express my thanks and my gratitude for you being willing to come on and talk about a very personal topic that I think people need to hear and learn more about. It's very generous of you. You got any other questions or? If I had one question, it would be if you would be willing to try to describe what you mean when you talk about dysphoria. That's a question that bounces around a lot even in my own head, because I feel like it's, it's hard to put into words exactly. Okay, well, let me, know, give, you, let me give you a context yeah. to start, and, and you can bounce off of this. I think most of us have the experience of 
being in situations where there might be a thing or more thing, you know, something or some things that we are unhappy about with the way that we look physically, like we're just not okay with that part of our body. I know that that doesn't even come close to what I hear people describe as dysphoria, but does that help to provide at least a springboard concept to proceed forward with a description? It's like something deeper than just being unhappy with your body. There were definitely moments of intense dysmorphia about my body and feeling like I shouldn't look the way I do, being uncomfortable with aspects of my body. For me, at least, it might be different for some people. I felt like the dysphoria was something almost more internal, like an internal sense of self that didn't match not only my body, but how I was perceived by the world and how I saw myself interacting with the world around me. A lot of times people mistake dysphoria. They're like, oh, you're just a guy who doesn't like guy things. Oh, you just don't like sports or whatever. You're just kind of like a a guy with less stereotypically masculine interests. I understand why people go there. That's sort of an easy presentation, like the gender as it's constructed around our societal expectations is something much more easy to grasp than in like an internal sense of self. But it wasn't just like, oh, I don't like football. It was more like, I don't like the way people see me. I don't like the way I'm perceived by the people around me. I don't feel comfortable. Growing up, it was like, of course, I'd be attracted to women, but also I wish I could go over there and be a part of that space. I could be friends with these women over here because I'm not comfortable with these guys. I'm not comfortable with the space I'm occupying in these relationships. When you're going out into the world and people are seeing you as a specific gender, they change the way they treat you based on that perception. Your friends, people around you, they have a perception of you as this particular gender, and that influences the entire way they relate to you. I think that's a experience that trans people have way more insight into. Yeah. That entire perception, that entire way that they're treating you, it's just weird and uncomfortable for you and you you don't like it. You can't always put a finger on exactly why you don't like it or why it's making you uncomfortable. It just does. You constantly are feeling like you don't want to be there. Um, I really appreciate you trying to help define that a little bit. I think it's a really difficult concept. Like you say, it's so simple for somebody in the cis community to just say, oh, it's just something like when you don't like something about your body. But I know there's so much more to it than that. It's not the same thing. But that, I think, is the first thing that a person that cis is going to go to because it's the only thing that they have to relate to as far as dissatisfaction with a physical attribute. But it really can't sum it up. It really isn't comparable. At least from my perspective, it was definitely something way more deeper about how I interacted with the world, how everybody was perceiving me and treating me that was weird and uncomfortable. The body part of it's definitely part of it. It's almost wrapped up in the fact that your secondary sexual characteristics and the way you dress and all these things, they're signs to other people around you about who you are. That's the thing that you want to change more than anything else, even more than your own body and your physical self, is you want to change the way you interact with the world around you and the way people see you. You can't do that without the physical changes. No, that's great. Thank you so much. Sure. I think that's a wrap. Thanks again, Harper, for coming on. Yeah, no problem.
that's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring. <laughs>